Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today and for the next three weeks, we begin a series called Passion, a study in John chapter 12 to 14. So right now, turning your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Passion. It was in September of 2005 that a Danish newspaper published a series of 12 editorial cartoons, which, which at the time went almost unnoticed. Well, those cartoons depicted Mohammed in a mocking fashion. They had everything from one which depicted a, a bomb in Mohammed's turban and another depicting Mohammed standing in heaven, receiving suicide bombers, and then saying, stop, we've run out of virgins. Please hear me, I'm not lauding these cartoons. The newspaper said they were trying to contribute to a debate on the role of Islam and terrorism. I think it wasn't debate. It was just simply mocking and jeering. And I, for my part, am opposed to mocking anyone's religion. I think it's always in bad taste. I do think that both ideas and religion should be challenged, debated, and dialogue needs to be called for. Reasoned, irenic, challenging debate. I think this kind of mocking doesn't contribute to anything. So why am I mentioning it? Well, because although at the time those cartoons went almost unnoticed, suddenly, some four months after the cartoons, suddenly, those cartoons sparked violent demonstrations all over the world. These things are blasphemous. That's what it was said. More than 250 deaths were reported, and the thing became intense. Violent Islamists attacked Danish diplomatic missions, even though the government had nothing to do with the cartoons of a free press. But more, there were worldwide attacks on Christians and on churches as well. So where did that come from? Well, I think it comes from the notion that there is in many Islamic countries that the West is Christian. And of course, neither the newspaper nor the nation of Denmark is Christian. But all of this was passion getting out of control. And you might also remember that in 2015, the Charlie Hebdo cartoons resulted in the killing of five who worked at that magazine, and that was in France. And what was that all about? It's about passion, a kind of passion in which reason is abandoned and violence and jihad and killing even the innocent. Now, someone must be made to pay, and that's the kind of passion that I would argue the world needs a lot less of. Let me contrast those incidents with another one, one in which I would contend is far more outrageous. American artist Andre Serrano produced a photograph of a crucifix submerged in a glass tank of the artist's urine. It was entitled, Piss Christ. The Southeastern Center for Contemporary Arts outrageously, and with a rank insult to Christians everywhere, gave that depiction of utter contempt first place the winner of their annual awards for the visual arts. That also is passion. And I have to admit, I felt my own passion when I heard of the matter. I felt appalled and violated. I felt angry. I was overcome with grief. Was it not enough that men crucified my Lord, must they now urinate on his act of loving sacrifice for the sins of the world? Yeah, what I felt was indeed genuine passion. And here's the thing about passion. Everyone feels it and everyone knows what it is. Attend a sporting event for your favorite team and, and watch what happens when the referee calls a penalty the crowd thinks to be unfair. You know, I've heard people who seem in every other sphere to be respectable, 
But there they are with veins bulging in their necks and hurling vitriolic abuse at the referee. I've heard of fights breaking out between parents at sporting events when their children participate. It's called passion. Or think of sexual passion between a man and a woman. I mean, how many marriages have been destroyed by passion that has overflowed its banks? Or think about the passion that's currently felt about carbon emissions and whether or not you think that the cause of global climate change has to do with the amount of carbon particulates in the air. So if you think the matter of carbon and temperatures are not a one-to-one relationship, well, you're probably a climate denier. Kind of sounds like a Holocaust denier. So there's passion, not reason. See, here's what I'm saying. Passion makes some attack and kill, and it drives others to worship. And it drives others to work and causes others to commit adultery. And all of it is called passion. But let me get back to the Danish cartoons for a moment, an illustration with which I started. Shortly after the worldwide demonstrations, John Piper wrote the following words. He said, what we saw in this past week in the Islamic demonstrations over the Danish cartoons of Mohammed was another vivid depiction of the difference between Mohammed and Christ and what it means to follow each. Not all Muslims approve the violence, but a deep lesson remains. The work of Muhammad is based on being honored, and the work of Christ is based on being insulted. This produces two very different reactions to mockery. Well, today I'm opening up the Easter season, and over the next three weeks, we're going to be studying John chapters 12 to 14. And and actually, if you don't know it, John dedicates chapters 12 to 19 in his book to what has historically been called the Passion of Our Lord. That's about his suffering and his death. And then chapters 20 to 21, they're taken up in the resurrection. That's to say that for John, eight of his 21 chapters that make up his book on the life of Jesus, eight of those chapters are taken up in but one week, the week of passion, by which we mean the suffering of our Lord. They are about a very deep passion, a a passion so intense that everything else is swallowed up and it seems only passion remains. Well, you might wonder, when we talk about the week of Jesus' sufferings, why traditionally we speak of this event as the passion of our Lord. And certainly, at least in the examples I've given, passion is often connected with a flight from reason, in which baser and lower emotions propel people to do things and say things and even accomplish things they would not have done unless they are carried along by passion. And so passion seems like, at least to us, a strange word when it comes to the final week that led to the cross. Passion, at least, this is the way that some of us think of the word, at least today we do. It's an inappropriate word. Submission to the will of God comes to mind. Not my will, but yours be done. That comes to mind. Doesn't sound like passion, rather it sounds like the laying aside of our passion. And furthermore, if there is passion, well, you know, you might think of the chief priests and their followers screaming at Jesus while he's hanging on the cross, and they're saying, you saved others, save yourself and come down from that cross, and then we're going to believe in you. Now, that kind of reaction sounds very much like the man who put the crucifix in the jar of his own urine, sinful mocking of Jesus on the cross. But how are we to speak about the passion of Jesus? Passion, indeed, is a strange word. 
You know, we think of what Jesus endured at the hand of sinful men, not the passion that's fueling his desire. And yet, as we begin our study in John 12 to 14, we'll, we'll come very quickly to John 12, 27. Jesus will say, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. That's to say, this is the reason I've come to the earth. This is my entire reason for being here. That is, this moment of suffering is my passion. Or we might think back earlier to John 10, 17 to 18, and there Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I received from my Father. See, that's to say, Jesus did not suffer from a bad turn of events. Jesus' passion was to radically go to Jerusalem and force the hand of the Pharisees, back those Pharisees into a corner so that the the dark recesses of their hearts would be exposed, and in turn, they would lash out in wrath and nail him to the cross with the help of the Roman government, and then he would become the Passover lamb, the atoning sacrifice for the world. That was the passion to fulfill the plan of the Father. Now, of course, the term passion, well, it comes from a Latin word. That Latin word simply means suffering. So in that sense, to speak of passion of our Lord is to simply speak of his suffering. And, And historically, when we've spoken of the passion of Jesus, that's precisely what we've meant, his suffering. But as you've already seen, I've used the term passion in much more of a contemporary manner, the way we commonly think of the term. And I'm arguing that it was love for the Father, this foremost passion of Jesus, and love for the lost human race. That's what drove Jesus on. Think of how Jesus said this, John 4:34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Or John 5:30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or again, John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's Christ's passion. In Dr. Neufeld's recent blog post concerning the COVID-19 pandemic, He challenged us to consider the words of Psalm 91. So let's reflect on just two sections of that psalm. Beginning at verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And verse 14, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, in the midst of uncertain times, trust in the God that loves his children beyond measure. For more information about Back to the Bible, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. Today, I want us to begin to explore one kind of passion. I want us to look closely at the passion of Jesus, and yes, I've said it, 
This last week of Jesus' life is a week of suffering, and as we've seen, the historic meaning of the word passion is that of suffering. And the point of all this talk of passion is to define it. It's to talk about what kind of passion we mean when we speak of the passion of Jesus. And in the end, the point is to inspire us to have our own passion for God, his glory. But a passion has to be rightly defined, and it has to be a passion through suffering and humility and sacrifice. So let's begin by reading the start of John 12 to 14. And here I'm reading John 12, verse 1. It simply says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. A bit of background is necessary here. According to the previous chapter, that is John 11, Jesus has done an outstanding miracle. Standing beside the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus, Jesus demanded that they roll back the stone that sealed the door of his tomb. Lazarus had been dead four days, and as they rolled back the stone, the putrefying odor of death shot from the tomb into the hot Palestinian air. It was revolting. No doubt people would have covered their faces. It was a face-to-face encounter with death. And there in that almost surreal setting, Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And then a noise and then shuffling. And then astonishingly out of the tomb of death stands Lazarus himself bound in grave clothes. It must have seemed as if when Jesus was present, none of the other rules of what happened in this world applied anymore. He'd already demonstrated that he was the Lord of nature when he walked on water and calmed the storm with with simply the sound of his voice. He'd already demonstrated that he was Lord over demons when they shrieked as they saw him coming. He was Lord over the worst of diseases, even over the vile leprosy that had claimed so many. But now, Lord of life and Lord of death, I mean, what else could be added to his resume? Is it not likely then that, that he's Lord over the destiny of every man and woman? Well, that was an amazing day. And then something else happened. Shortly after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, John eleven forty seven to 48 astonishingly records, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so enraged passion, yeah, it's a passion to protect their place in history. Jesus' enemies are plotting to kill him. But to their minds, the matter is logical. Every year at Passover, the people of Israel were looking to see if this was the year in which God would send the Messiah. And when Jesus came to Jerusalem that year, the people hearing of the raising of Lazarus would assume that he was. And the Romans, always nervous about the arousal of Jewish national passion, would know what to do. The Romans were brutal. If they thought their power was threatened, well, they'd rain down death onto Jerusalem. They had their own particular passion. And so we read the religious leader's response in, in John eleven fifty, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That's the reasoning. It's better that he die than all of us die. And John, who records that response, said that the high priest didn't know it, but that his words of hatred and contempt for Jesus were also a word of prophecy. Jesus had come to die for the nation, sure enough. And with that, we come to John chapter 12. It's now Saturday, six days before the Passover. Jerusalem would be filled to overflowing with pilgrims. 
The Romans would move their troops from the coastal city of Caesarea, and they'd they'd come inland all the way to Jerusalem. It was a nervous time of the year. The entire nation of Israel would be talking about liberation from their oppressors, and Rome knew that this might easily lead to a mass riot. Passions inflamed in the city. And so every soldier in the country went on high alert, told to be aware at any moment that the worst might happen and to be ready to follow orders immediately. And the other towns in Israel would be pretty well empty. That's because the First Testament mandated it. You know, Exodus 23, verse 17 says, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord. You know, the first of those, which have been called the pilgrimage feast, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also leading into the Passover. Yep. This, then, is a passionate gathering of the entire nation, all stuffed into one already overcrowded city. In order for Jesus to attend Passover, he has to find a place to stay. See, not everyone can stay in Jerusalem, and so many of the small towns around Jerusalem are also overflowing. And for his part, Jesus has come back to Bethany. That's the place where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And Bethany is about two kilometers from Jerusalem. It's a very easy walk. He can go to Passover celebrations every day and then simply return back to Bethany every evening. But his enemies remember what happened in Bethany. They knew that Jesus is the greatest threat they had ever faced, and they also knew that drastic action would be required. But if they play their cards just right, perhaps they can tamp down unrest during this Passover and then kill Jesus when it's all over. You know, up to now, they're still of the belief that they can control the situation, but but of course, they've never been in control of the situation. And as we read through John's gospel, we should be spellbound because John will let us know Jesus has come to Jerusalem to let them do just what his enemies want. He has come to let his enemies kill him. But he will force the issue. It will happen at Passover. You know, I'm reminded of Joseph's words to his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What is intended by the hands of men and the hands of Satan is evil. God will take this evil intent and design good out of that same thing. I think it's right and proper at Easter time to quote Genesis 50 verse 20. And Jesus knew that. And he came to Jerusalem to be mocked and to be spit on, to be maligned and lied against, to receive the fists of men in his face and to be hailed in mockery as their king and to be whipped mercilessly and then nailed to a cross and to die between two common thieves. That's why he arrived in Bethany on that Saturday. And in that, you see the passion of Jesus. And if I were to put all of that together, I would say this is his passion. It is the passion to pursue his assignment from God. You know, and that's what Isaiah prophesied. It's recorded in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And Jesus knew his assignment from God was to come to Jerusalem, where both Satan and men, would conspire against him and where God would design horrifying suffering for his precious son. And Isaiah 53 uses words to describe his assignment from God. Bruised, pierced, wounded, despised, rejected, oppressed, forsaken, slaughtered, crushed, and cut off. Now, these are the words that describe his assignment. That's why Jesus came to Bethany. It was to fulfill the scripture. Let's return back to our theme of passion. 
You know, the Quran states that Jesus did not die on the cross, but that God saved him from that. In fact, reading from the Quran here, it says, and they're saying, surely we have killed the Messiah, Issa, son of Maryam, the apostle of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it appeared to them so. And most surely, those who differ therein are only in a doubt about it. They have no knowledge respecting it, but only follow a conjecture, and they killed him not for sure. You know, one Sunni Muslim wrote, We honor Jesus more than you Christians do. We refuse to believe that God would permit him to suffer death on a cross. It's not possible, they think, that God would allow his servant to suffer so. And of course, we would respond, that's exactly what our Lord had come to do. And it's all over the Bible. John 12, 24 will record Jesus is saying, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know, Jesus is saying, like a grain of wheat, I can't be fruitful unless I fall, unless I'm taken down to the earth. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Again, this is the passion of Jesus. This is the deep inner desire he sought to fulfill. Now, of course we know this was his supreme passion to fulfill the will of the Father. Passion, yeah? Passion of Jesus is the story of his suffering, but it's also the story of his zeal. We see Jesus with a goal firmly fixed in his mind, and he will not be detracted. Join me then in a study of John 12 to 14. We will be witnessing Passion Week, at least its beginning. We will be witnessing the passion of our Lord and Savior. Thanks so much, John, for your message today. I just thought while you were talking, you know, I think it's important for us to understand as Christians what we authentically should be prepared for when we claim the name of Christ. Yeah, I mean, we need to, I mean, as Jesus said, we need to be prepared like the grain of wheat to fall into the ground and die. We need to follow him to his death. We need to also, um, because I've made mention, Ben, of Muslims, and let me repeat myself here. I think it's beholden on all Christians not to abuse Muslims, to show love towards Muslims, and to also listen to them so that they have the feeling that they're being understood when we're talking. So these things are very important that we don't allow that kind of passion uh, to overwhelm us where we're not loving. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Christians around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, may God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. You know, we're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. This month, would you please consider supporting the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada across the country? Your gifts make this ministry possible. 
To learn more or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.